You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. On today's show, I interview Aaron Fuhrer, who is the co-founder and CEO of Panorama Education, a Boston-based education technology company that he launched while an undergraduate at Yale. Panorama's college and career readiness tools, school climate surveys, and social-emotional learning assessments are currently used to support the success of more than 12 million K-12 students in 21,000 schools each year. Places like New York City, Dallas, Detroit, San Francisco, Indianapolis, et cetera, et cetera. When he was a high school student in Los Angeles, he got involved as an organizer to fight for better schools. They got a bill passed in California that encouraged schools to give students a voice through student surveys. However, the bill didn't end up making much of an impact and thus was born Panorama. They've raised a reported $32 million to date They have something like 220, maybe more employees, and 30 open positions growing quickly. They've achieved great scale. We talked about how he got his start as a founder, misconceptions about selling into education, the power of naivete, how to learn how to be a CEO, the metrics to focus on as a mission-driven company, and choosing a location for a startup, and then embracing a distributed team. So much more. Please stay tuned. Aaron, welcome to Startups for Good. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Miles. Glad to be here. So I'd love to start off with this question. If you want to change the world, is it better to do a for-profit startup or advocate to change government policy? Glad to start with a deep question, Miles. And so first, my view is that both are really important routes to changing the world. And if I think about what I was doing with my life, if I wasn't doing Panorama, my entire life and career would be on the other side, making changes in government policy. Uh, so I think both are really important. I would say my, so my experience and my take on this is that, you know, there's so many issues in this world that actually aren't so much policy questions, but they're actually implementation questions. They're questions about what are we doing on the ground to make something happen and to make change happen. Like in my view, a lot of you know making changes to education is less about policy, the policy matters, and more about how we really support teachers and principals on the ground. Um, I'm gonna say kind of my bias on this. So when I, when I was growing up, I grew up in Los Angeles and my time in high school, I spent my entire time in high school as a student organizer, organizing students in Los Angeles to fight for better schools. So we were organizing walkouts and rallies and protests, petitions, sort of everything under the sun, trying to change policy from a student perspective. And I think, you know, for me, the takeaway from that experience was, you know, we really weren't able to make the change we wanted to see from a student's perspective. And a lot of the problem, though, wasn't like a will or a desire to make school better for students. It was really a how question. And so from that perspective, I think I come down very much on the policy matters a great deal, but what really matters is how are we going to make this change happen in schools? And from that lens, I think a startup can be a really powerful way to make that change happen in school. So how do you make change? That's a a great question. So I I think there are, from my perspective, there are a few ways of making change. I think I'll focus in particular on education because that's where I, that's where I spend my day, that's where I spend my time. 
Um, and as you know, I also I run Panorama Education. Uh, we're a startup about 220 people, um, and we serve about 1,500 school districts, um, about 12 million students all across the country, focused on helping schools make change in education and improve school outcomes for students. And so I think my you know, view on making change is a few things first. I think we have to start with a vision for what is the world that we're trying to create, where it's easy to say we want to improve schools. It's much harder to say, like, what do you actually want education to look like for students? Um, and I'll say, you know, my, my take on this is that if we want to make change in education, the two changes we need to make are one, we need to make sure, sure that schools focus on the whole child so that we're looking at social emotional learning, well-being, along with academics. And two, we got to make sure that schools are really getting students ready for a modern world. It's not about graduation. It's about getting students ready and engaged for the world. And so for me, it starts with setting this vision and then figuring out from there, how do we support every person you know, inside of these systems like schools in making that change? So you're starting to sound like you're using your technology to personalize education in approaching that whole student rather than just taking averages of what do most people think are the problems. Is that where you're driving? Yep, I, I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, there are a couple of things that we're trying to do with Panorama. I think the first idea, you know, I use the word personalization. I love that word, though it's kind of become this buzzword of like everybody using the word personalization. You know, so, so my view is that there's, there's this like shift happening in school where school used to be in some ways about this one-size-fits-all model of, how do we educate all students? How do we teach a class of 30 students? And I think what's happening today and what should be happening in schools is this much more personalized model where we ask, what does every, you know, what is every child's name? What is every child's strength? What is every child's story? What is every child's need? And kind of make school about every student. And to me, I think that is the core part of the future where obviously a ton of things are happening for all students, everything from school lunch to math instruction, there's this core element of school. But within that, when we say every student matters, we're going to help every student find their path. Like that's what education should look like. And that's a big part of what I hope we can do at Panorama is making this every student vision come to reality. How has that vision changed over time at Panorama? So I think for us, it's probably taken three changes or kind of three stages in many ways as we've learned about what we think would make a difference in schools. I think the first stage for us is we were really focused on the environment that students were learning in and trying to think about, you know, what does it feel like to go to school every day for a student? And, you know, this before you're going to learn English or math, it matters a great deal whether you belong, whether you feel safe, whether you have adult relationships. And so I think in many ways, you kind know, of the first phase of Panorama was all about thinking about what a student needs from the school around them and helping make that happen. Um, and I think the second, and that was a really important foundation. And to me, that actually is one of the most important ideas in education is that the school environment makes a tremendous difference for how students are doing in school, which I think kind of makes sense intuitively, but is in many ways a kind of a revolutionary idea. And I think then for us, I think the next stage was to say, great, love the environment, but now let's look at every student. And let's kind of think about what we typically talk about with students, and that's like English and math, versus what like all of us know from our own kids, our own education, like what matters for a child. And if you think about that for a student, there's this whole other half of 
love of learning and finding your passions and building self-confidence and building, you know, resilience and creativity. And so we've been trying to help schools. And you know, this is like why every teacher gets into education is helping this whole child. And so rest the second part was looking at what are all these missing pieces of a student that we want to make sure are part of school? And so first, that was like the first two evolutions. And most recently, we've been working to bring this full circle, kind of bring together then this whole child approach, school environment, but also now academics, attendance, college readiness, a lot of things we often otherwise talk about, kind of recognizing that we really want to look at this 360 understanding about how every student is doing. And that's really how school makes a difference is when you think about every student as a whole person and bring together like academics, mental health, well-being, families, everything about a child. Was this kind of surveying, question asking, not happening before Panorama? Or is it a matter of you make it easier and cheaper for schools to do? So I think in many ways, you know, I think you actually hit on kind of the core thing that one of the big differences Panorama has made here is that, you know, so one, I think you talk to, you know, teachers, principals across the country, these are not new ideas. That's kind of like why everybody got into education, right? You got into education to support getting whole children ready. I think what we found with Panorama was that this work was happening in some places. I'm like New York City is one of our largest clients. You know, they were an early adopter of kind of seeing school climate surveys and, you know, giving students a voice in a way before Panorama was in existence. And so in some places you saw this work was happening and then Panorama can help supercharge it. But I think your point about like just making it easier underscores actually a big impact area, which is there are a lot of things that until they're made easier are really hard to do at scale. And I think to me, that's been something that we've realized in Panorama is that, you know, while some districts like New York City were able to bring about this vision before Panorama and Panorama can help them make it better, there are hundreds of other districts that really cared about this, but didn't necessarily have the tools and the means to do it. If you think about giving voice to students, for example, you know, on our survey part, we're surveying students in 45 languages across the country, research back questions, benchmarks, analytics, pretty hard to get that right, actually. And, and so a lot of what we found was that if you make things easier and effective to do at scale, you don't just make it easier, you actually get a whole bunch of schools to do it who might not otherwise have done it because they wanted to do it, but it was just a little bit too hard. As I recall, the initial product contained both an offline and online component to it. Is that still true? <laughs> You're right, Miles. It's funny. And I, I love the fact that you, you saw Panorama in our very earliest days in New Haven. And you know, which is funny was that, you know, Panorama has always been, you know, this mix of a tech startup education company, but in our earliest days, you know, a lot of what we were doing was helping schools survey students, parents, and teachers on paper. I mean, I remember in our first year in like 2013, I think we printed and shipped a million paper surveys to people across the country, which like sounded ridiculous. And it was I remember sitting stuffing envelopes literally like long nights you know, nine years ago. But yeah, it's so what we found basically was that we wanted to give a voice to every, every student, every parent, every teacher. And a lot of people say that, but then everybody means people with internet access who speak English. And so I think what we found was that um, with our ability to do, do surveys on paper, we could reach a much broader set of students, parents, and teachers, both across the country and inside a district. And we also were able to be much more accessible from a language perspective. And so we are still doing quite a bit of surveys on paper. One thing I will say is we, we've been doing much more digital translated surveys on smartphones. And to be able to see over the past nine years, you know, there's been so much more internet connectivity. We can do a lot more digitally now than it used to be on paper. Yeah, that makes sense that 
the adoption of smartphones and the continued adoption and expectation of digital technologies in in all walks of life is is really increased over that time frame. So that makes sense. I do remember fondly meeting you uh, when you were still a student at Yale and wish I had invested, uh, although felt conflicted because we had a <laughs> We had a product that was a survey product in higher education and just worry that someday we might, might compete. But uh, I do have fond memories of that. I do. I remember sitting in your office. I, I appreciate it a lot. I mean, I remember as students, I guess I can admit this now, we really had no idea what we were doing, right? Because <laughs> it's okay. Nobody does, right? Well, right, right because I think we, we knew the core impact, right? We knew what we had to do for students. We knew which looking at schools. We got the education side of it. But how do you actually build an organization around it? We had no idea. And I remember even just like walking into the higher one offices in New Haven and kind of that feeling of like humility of like, okay, we have so much to learn about if we're really going to scale this up. We're just kind of humbling. I remember to see your HQ and it was like, I right, we have so much to learn about. Like, it's one thing to make this impact in one school, but if we really want to serve every school in the country, like we have a lot to learn. So how did you learn that? How did you learn how to be a CEO, how to be a startup founder? Yeah, you know, I, I feel like it's actually important to change that tense a little bit where I think as a startup founder, you're constantly learning at every scale. Good point, good point. I, I, and I said it because like, what's been interesting, I felt, right, so we, you know, think about Panorama, right, and I think about, so this year, we, we began this year about 190 people, we'll end this year about 300 people on the team. And like, it's interesting because the startup founder that I needed to be in December is going to be a totally different person than I have to be this coming December. And so it's been interesting, I, I think, you know, to be in this role where you have to be constantly learning, and in many ways, it's like getting hired for a new job constantly, and it kind of, I think, requires a certain degree of humility at every stage to realize you haven't figured it out yet. I remember hearing a, a CEO joke, you know, I just got good at being a CEO for our last stage. But I think for me, what's been helpful has been just a really good network of advisors who have seen patterns of every stage, who are able to kind of say like, hey, are you looking out for this? Here's what matters. You know, here's what's different at 200 people versus 100 people. Um, and I think also just building my team around me has been really important where is anything a little bit about as, as a first time founder is that, you know, we founded the company in college. So like, you know, began Panorama without a whole lot of outside work experience. I mean, I remember bidding on our first like government contracts. We didn't even have diplomas at the time to like cite in our resumes. And so for me, like the thing for me has been building a really strong leadership team and bench of leaders across the company around me. And I think that also helps me grow where I can both learn from everybody around me, build a really strong team and have strong advisors. And I just like, I love reading. So I will just read as much as I can as others have written about their journey as well. Yeah, I have read so much and I've found stories to be helpful. I remember at some point, my first startup sitting down and thinking, okay, I'm going to write my succession plan. And then every six months or so, I would sort of rewrite it, revisit it and execute a bit on it. And, and you're talking about, you know, hiring great people. That was the lens I used of like, okay, well, if I were going to step out of the business tomorrow, like what would I have to pass on? Like do that today because my role is only going to change and grow and shift as the business is growing. It feels exactly right. I'm now been taking notes on the side. I'm like, that's a great, I, I actually think, you know, something I'm feeling right now is I'm kind of due to do kind of exactly what you just described here, where I still feel a little bit like I'm being the CEO I needed to be in our last chapter. And so, you know, for me, I mean, that's something that happens all the time. And I'm sure you felt the same way every moment, but like, 
I, I feel like I am due to do exactly what you just described more frequently, which is like, you know, I think I now got to figure out like who, what is my next version of myself over the next year? And I love that succession. That, that's an actually I think every founder should do every six months. Like I love that suggestion. I'm curious, you mentioned being a student when you started, and I've had that experience as well. What do you think is unique about student startups or any advice that, that you could offer other students at that stage? Yeah, you're, you're, you're bringing me back. I mean, I, um, I think there were a few, right? So, so student startup, you've got like almost everything. You've got a lot of disadvantages, right? You've like no work experience here in school. My senior year grades for to say were not as strong as the previous part of my college career. Okay. I think they're like, I think it's helpful to think about student founders from the perspective of like, how do you turn what could be a disadvantage into a strength? And I think there are a few things that were really interesting in hindsight that helped us as being student founders. I think the first was this realization of how little we knew. Like we, and I think that created some humility in the early days for us. It was like listening and soaking in everything. I mean, you remember like me, you know, being in your office, like I remember my little like, you know, maroon notebook, just taking notes on everything you said. And I think one as a student, if you have this humility to recognize like really how little you know, I don't have a degree yet. That can be a superpower of yours if you can learn faster because of that. I think it also, it gave us the ability to have new, the flip side, it also gave us the ability to have a new perspective on the market. Like one thing I remember, it's kind of trite to say, but now that I just had humility, the flip side of it was a ton of people thought we had a really stupid business idea. And like, I remember, I, I would say we had a small number who really believed in us and a lot of us who doubted it who basically told us that you that schools don't want to change, teachers don't want to change, you can't sell the school districts, it's too hard. And like everyone had all these reasons why we were going to fail. And I think it was helpful that we had a bit of this like youthful naivete to just say like, I'm just going to tune you out and do it and we'll see this happen, right? And I think we were kind of constantly, for every person who told us like, I don't think schools want to change. We just had this deep optimism that we believe deeply that like educators across the country want to make school better for students. And like we powered through it. And I think we actually proved that out correctly. And so and I'm rambling, but I think like from a student perspective, it's an interesting thing where you, one, you have this humility of like, I don't know anything. I'm going to learn constantly. But you also benefit from this like naivete the, and like this optimism that I think is like an essential burning light inside of a company. And like, I try to keep that like sense of wonder and optimism alive. I love paradoxes and seeing things from both sides. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I'm also reminded of Paul Graham's essay about students and the power of poverty and naivete. And he mentions a few other supposed weaknesses that are strengths for students in starting companies. Hmm. You know, not, not knowing it's impossible, like you said. Don't just listen, get engaged. Join our giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. And who knows, the startup that you fund may be on Startups for Good one day. I'm really curious how you figured out how to sell schools because you have had tremendous success in a market where people traditionally think there are long sales cycles, there's a resistance to change, and there's certain channels you have to go through. And as a new vendor, it's very difficult to get attention. Yes, those are all kind of lies. It's sort of funny um, in hindsight. Like, like right now, our sales cycle is 60 days and we're selling like major district-wide projects. And it's like fascinating, right? Because th that is like totally the standard wisdom and it's totally wrong. I think there were two things that we did well and didn't realize we were doing. So one thing was that 
Our product hit a very real need for schools. I think it's important that if you're trying to work with any school organization, you want to be at this intersection of really big impact for kids and also a deep priority area for someone leading a school district. And you want to have something very specific. Like a lot of people are trying to like sell these like broad panaceas. And we were very specific in the early days. We're like, we are going to help you give a voice to all of your students, your parents, and your teachers. And we're going to help you grow social emotional skills. And like, that's it. Like that, that's what we're doing. And what we found was that that was at the perfect intersection of really important for students, top of mind for educators, and like very specific and very concrete. And I think that was important. So for one, it was like a classic, I think, well, that's, so I guess that's product market fit if you were putting like the jargon to it. And so for me, like that was the first piece was like, we just really understood what students needed, what schools needed. I think the other thing for us is that we had no concept of how one should actually sell. So we would just like talk to anybody who would talk to us. Like, I remember we would literally just like email superintendents cold being like, here's what we're doing. Do you want to talk? I remember, like, you know, a professor would say, hey, you know, my partner is on the school board here. Do you want to talk to their district? I remember like I Facebook messaged another student activist to talk to their superintendent. We just like talking to anybody who would talk to us. And we found out that it was actually a pretty compelling story. And so for us, that was the key. And then over time, we basically figured out how do we sort of systematize it? And I will say the sales team that we've built has been truly exceptional because it's a team that is deeply driven by, by mission and vision and like deeply driven by bringing our impact to students. And we built like a really top rate sales team that in my opinion looks like nothing else in education. And, and it's a pretty special thing. The power of mission, that's, that's wonderful to hear about. How has that helped or hurt on the fundraising side? It's changed a lot. So it's kind of interesting, right? So. In 2013, we came out of Y Combinator, and our product at the time was helping schools run service, right? We had this broad vision for how we're going to transform education, but if you look under the hood, we were kind of like a survey monkey for schools. And at the time, it was probably 80%, like, you know, probably most people we talked to, like, didn't get it. But there were kind of a small number of, like, the really, really top investors, like Y Combinator, Paul Graham saw it in the early days, Jeff Ralston, Michael Siebel did, John Levy. And so I remember coming out of YC basically with this kind of split where there were a small number of really great investors like Uncore Capital and our seed round. I remember Ashton Kutcher actually immediately got our vision, like his sister was a teacher and he saw immediately like why this would be in schools. And so I think in the early days, a small number of investors really got the vision and they were like bought in immediately. So look, we totally get why you're doing this today. We see the potential we're in and we believe both in your mission and if you build a really impactful business around this. I don't think most people just kind of didn't get it. And it was rather demoralizing, actually, because like, you know, I think most companies kind of have a ton of investors who get it for, but it doesn't matter, right? Like all we needed, were having like five or 10 top investors really get it. And that's kind of been our experience initially was, you know, a small number of folks like Spark Capital, Owl Ventures, Emerson, like top tier investors who just like got it. And then for some reason, in the past like five years, something switched where as we've proven out our vision and as education's become a more normalized market, like we've seen that investors now are really excited about education. And so it's kind of funny because I, I feel like, you know, nine years ago, I was convincing people why education was possible. And now education, everyone's just like really, really excited about it. Um, I think something I try to think about, though, is like it's really important to me to find investors who are mission aligned where I believe that like mission and like venture capital can go really hand in hand together. You just got to find an investor who believes as deeply in the mission as we do. And we found this. How do you test for that? 
we've done a few things. I think you just, so, I mean, I think one, we lead deeply with our mission and there are some investors then who therefore like say that's enough. Like, I, like you know, they kind of self-select. I think when you engage with someone, you can just immediately tell how much the mission clicks, right? Like I remember, you know, talking to an investor at a top tier, you know, firm who was talking about their own, you know, their experience in school, how education got them where they were today, you know, first generation family, depending on where they were today, talking about their kids' experience, their student being supported through something in school. And you just see people light up when they talk about why the company matters. And you can immediately feel the difference between somebody who believes and wants to see this change in the world versus someone who is just kind of like trying to sell me on it, basically. And it might be that actually I found that our, our mission is deeply, deeply resonant because, you know, education is something that's touched almost everyone. I think almost everyone has a, has a deeply held personal education experience and passion. Now, some of those names you mentioned in terms of investors are known for investing in mission-driven companies. Others don't immediately say education or mission, like uh, Uncork, for example. Am I wrong? I, I don't think of them as mission-forward investors. Good question. So we had a super secret trick in our early days, not trick, but a mission, which was we, we immediately realized that our biggest challenge is going to be building like a high growth company in this. And we also realized there was so much misinformation about education. We wanted to have investors who actually cared about education, but didn't necessarily had done a ton because we needed some blank slate thinking. And so that's why like went through Y Combinator. That's why we chose Uncore because we actually liked the fact that they weren't like old school education investors. They were kind of coming open-minded to it. And so it was very much by design, actually, that our earliest investors were not education folks. I think what I will say, though, is that, you know, so I remember Stephanie Palmieri um, and Jeff Clavier at Uncork kind of had met us before Demo Day. And I remember they actually um, uh, met with us for breakfast and kind of basically made us give us a term sheet off for the morning of Demo Day. And for Jeff and Stephanie, like, they believed so deeply in the mission. Like they saw the business potential, but they were motivated by by mission. And I think I felt that over the years where, you know, when I hear Stephanie and Jeff talk about Panorama, they're like deeply motivated. So the partners at Uncork, they're deeply motivated by the mission we saw in the world. It was a good reminder to us that like, just because folks haven't done a ton of education investing, it doesn't mean they're not excited to, and they're not like really driven by the mission um, in the same way we are. And it's totally borne out over the years, by the way. That, that's been the cool thing is like, it's totally borne out over the years. That's really interesting to hear. I want to go back to something you said about how something flipped five years ago. Do you think that was something that changed in the market? Or do you think that has more to do with the fact that you had the business metrics, the scale and growth to show traditional investors? I think it's a both and. So I think I, I will say when I like frame Panama's business metrics, my benchmark is a top tier vertical SaaS company. Like I think in many ways, there's sometimes they like, I don't know, a different set of benchmarks for education with longer sales cycles, et cetera. And so I've kind of made a point that like from a business metrics perspective, I want to compare ourselves to the absolute best SaaS companies. And so from a business metric perspective, like that's, that's totally, I think, true, which is that I want to build a business that is like high performing internally. And, and so for one, like that is partially true that like we've switched from having like early stage metrics to like top tier vertical SaaS metrics. I think the other thing I will say is I think, I think there's been more education technology companies. I, I think from, I think the more talk about education, I think more comfort, you know, I think in some ways you think about markets going through transitional periods, right? Where like, 
you know, maybe five or 10 years ago, like investors were just becoming comfortable with medical, like, like med tech, basically, like FinTech had its moment. I think in some ways we were just like earlier than like ed tech having its moment. And I think in some ways ed tech has like had its moment. Like you see this year, right? I think Power School is like an early 90s, like early old education company on track to like IPO for $6 billion this year. I think we're building a very different kind of company than they are, but like we're kind of, we're seeing this renaissance of like, you know, really high growth major businesses in education. I think that's changing how investors see the market too. Thank you. Could I shift the conversation to talk about location? So you started yeah. a company in New Haven. I think you went out to the West Coast for Y Combinator. And now you're based and headquarters, much as that means anything these days, in Boston. <laughs> Tell us about how you decide where to locate a business and what would you recommend others do? So the reason why I picked Boston, so we, we love New Haven. I think ultimately we considered staying in New Haven we didn't feel like the talent pool was quite big enough in New Haven. If you think about both tech and education, uh, at the time, you know, I'm, I'm from LA, so like California at heart. But I, I, we chose Boston because we felt like Boston we needed top tier education talent and top tier tech talent, and we felt like Boston actually was kind of the best of all worlds in that market. Um, and we also liked being away a little bit from some of the tech bubble of San Francisco. Like I don't know, in 2013, it was like very bubbly at the time, and like we wanted to be in like. Boston felt a little more like serious tech. You know, since the use have changed. So right now, Panorama has an office in Boston, an office in San Francisco, and we have a huge portion of the company remote, like based across the country. So I think now we're probably at least in like 20 plus states across the US. And I think what it's interesting, as a founder, I love having everybody in person in the office. Like all else equal, like I would love to be in person with everybody. But by hiring remotely, it's been an enormous boon for our talent over the past year in particular. Like we've had a great time hiring in Boston, but my God, like the past year hiring across the US, we've brought in like such phenomenal leaders and team members from every part of the country. I'm kind of sold now on this distributed model of building a company where I love Boston and like I wouldn't pick a different headquarters. I'm pretty much sold now though that like the benefits of hiring across the country outweigh you know, my desire to have everybody in person every day. It sounds like hiring people distributed model has been more recent for you. What have you had to change in order to do that successfully? Yeah, I mean, so we had like the classic pandemic forcing function. Like before, you know, before last March, I was dogmatic that we would not hire remotely. You know, post-pandemic course, we did hire remotely, but everybody was remote. So it, did, it didn't really matter if you were hiring locally or remotely. Um, and, and I think a lot, we will have to do a lot of changes once some people are back in person. So for me, the hardest part so the, the two hardest parts, in my opinion, of hiring remotely, we have to change. So, you know, a, a lot of onboarding kind of continue. You make minor tweaks to how sessions are designed, all that good stuff. To me, I think the two biggest challenges of hiring and remote onboarding are one, how do you build a sense of belonging for new team members? Like I'm a very big believer that belonging is core to a company experience. And I, I don't, I'd give ourselves like five out of 10 on this over the past, I think we've been working on it, but it's very hard to build belonging remotely. We're trying to figure out now, how do we build a strong sense of belonging for team members starting remotely? Um, and I guess anybody in this period. And then the other thing I, I will say is that we had a certain like magical office vibe that was a big part of Panorama's like hiring and onboarding experience. And I mean, and I think it just like that hasn't quite translated remotely. And so I think we're still going through some of those growing pains of like, how do we take an in-office centric company and be just as vibrant remotely, which I think is like everyone's going through, but it, we felt it quite a bit this year. 
How do you measure success in building that kind of belonging or culture or internal environment that you want? So a few parts. And first I'll say diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging, you know, DEIB um, is tremendously important to us. And so w- when I think about you know, how we measure success, I think about it kind of in different stages. I think first from a hiring perspective, how are we able to kind of hire and attract both top talent, hire and attract diverse talent? You know, we want Panorama to ultimately represent the students who we serve. And so one key part of this is our ability to attract talent and actively build a team that represents the diversity of America's students. And so that's something we look at and measure very closely is like our recruiting efforts reflecting our commitment to diversity. And then there's a lot of work we do around like our recruiting process to make sure that every step is equitable, job descriptions are equitable, interviews are fair beyond just like, you know, pipeline of candidates. And then I think internally, there's this piece around, you know, you literally can measure employee experience. You know, we, we help schools run employee surveys. We do our own internal employee surveys. I was wondering about that. Yeah. Do you drink your own champagne? We do. We actually, I, I just kills me. We recently switched. We used to use our own product for many years, which was great. We basically hacked together a version of Panorama, like, and set up every department as its own school. It was super fun. We, we finally reached a point that like, we were basically trading off our own employee experience data for using our own product. And so we, uh, we recently switched to using a third-party tool, but we do run an internal company feedback survey. We pay a lot of attention to engagement data across the board. Honestly, a lot of room to grow. Like I love running a survey, you learn everything you to improve. And then also making sure that we are offering consistent and equitable experiences across the company. I think something that we're aware of is that, you know, we know that there isn't one panorama experience. If we look at groups by age, race, ethnicity, tenure, gender. We do see differences in team survey data. And so one of my objectives over the coming period is like, I both want to grow our surveys overall, but I really want us to do work to close some of these experience gaps. And so that's kind of my other big measure is team survey. And then we can also, of course, look at attrition data, performance data, and other other stuff as well. You've had a lot of success, tremendous growth. It's, it's so amazing to hear about it. I'm curious, what do you think has been the biggest challenge? Well, this is the face I make when I'm narrowing down like 10 things into one thing. Um, <laughs> you can I mention guess, more than one if you want to. Uh, only, I know, right, fair enough when I respect the question. So I think, I think maybe three things. I think one, which is a strength today, but was hard to build it up, was figuring out sales and education. It took us quite a while like to build our, again, our sales team is like so high performing today, but it took us quite a while to reach that point and figure out like, how do we do sales effectively in education? And that was honestly, it took us probably six to seven years to figure that out. Though today that feels like less of a future challenge and more of like, just scale that up. I think second for us, I mean, there's a saying, right? That um, as your company grows, your product goes from being your product to a CEO, your product is now the company that you're building. And and I think it's interesting. I, I think that in many ways, one of the hardest parts of scaling a company is doing just that, of like scaling the company of how do you scale the team, diversity, inclusion, leadership team, operations, as we're going through a crazy period of growth, especially during a pandemic. I mean, this past year's personally been, I think one of the most challenging leadership periods um, of my life. I think, you know, every leader is feeling that way. And so I think the challenge of just building a high scale business in this period, right? I think a company growing like headcount and revenue more than 50% year over year, that just creates a crazy amount of scaling and growth pains that we kind of figure out. And so that's kind of generic, that's hard. I think there's three for us. The other thing that's been on my mind, a consistent challenge is just prioritizing what our impact areas are for schools, where 
you know, a lot of time, we spent a lot of time on today's call talking about like the earliest days of Panorama and we're just doing surveys. That focus of doing one thing, do it really well, is like really deep in our blood. But there's now this temptation of like 15 other things we want to do. And it's one of our biggest forward looking challenges, I think, is like, how do we really decide what we're going to do? Because I don't want to be a company that is everything mediocre. I want to do like a few more things really well. And that's my biggest like forward looking challenge is like one half scaling the company and then one half, how do we pick the right impact areas to tackle next? Oh, that's hard. That's the fun of it though, right? I mean, it's a good, it's a good problem to have, to have like too many ideas we want to pursue, but it's, it's going to be important when we pick it thoughtfully. Is there a book, article, or website that you recommend to aspiring founders? I think some of my favorites, um, I really like the hard thing about hard things by, ben, by Horowitz. Um, ben Horowitz, really like the advantage by Lencioni. Um, I think high output management is very much a classic. And then I also think for companies that are focused on building you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, as we are, there's probably a longer list of books uh, that folks should think about. Um, but I think the book, So You Want to Talk About Race, is an important book in thinking about that. And I can pause there. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I guess the last closing question is, uh, where can people follow you or the company online? Actually, so welcome, folks, um, to kind of follow us, panoramaed.com, learn more about our products. I will put a brief plug that we are hiring for a ton of positions. I think we have more than 30 open positions right now. And so check us out, Google Panorama Education, uh, Panorama Ed, and kind of follow us both on our core website, uh, follow us on Twitter, and you can follow me on Twitter as well under um, Aaron Fewer, though I'm, I, I'm still building my, uh, I'm a pretty boring tweeter at this point. So just follow Panorama. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Miles. I, I, I get you played. Our moments were so special in Panorama's earliest days, and it's just really great to be back with you. And thanks for having me. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's Startups for Good, all run together, no spaces.com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.